You are listening to KPFA or KPFB Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. Next up, cover to cover, today's Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Please do stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Did you hear the good doctor on that last show? Yes, humanity hit this planet <laughs> like a like a bomb. Yes, indeed. There was a cartoon I cut out the other day. As it shows the beautiful green, uh, glimmering earth. And of course, it's, uh, being eaten like an apple down to its core by you know who. Anyway, today is Tuesday, March 4th, 2008, and it is late. Later than we know. Late in our day, anyway, and we're not getting any younger, folks. Um, I personally plan to live forever, but just in case. I just thought, uh, I want to tell you how much it means to me to have this microphone every week. I would have gone completely insane without KPFA. Uh, it's a strange, strange thing. Emily Dickinson, dear Emily, back in the 19th century, she wrote, This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. Most heartbreaking phrase, uh, I think, yes, it is a profound privilege to be here and to to give and take and receive your letters, which I treasure all. I treasure, I hope. I hope I will get some more letters answered soon. I have not been in the pink. <laughs> but as we all know, connection is everything. Young men I know down in Santa Cruz said... Oh, it's all right, Jennifer. You don't need to call. I just hear you on the radio, and then I know where you're at, you know? Anyway, we know that all the ills in this life come from separation, from not connecting, from not being at one with the others, you know? Uh, it's so hard to pin it down. I found something years ago when I was teaching in the urban schools, and... My students kept saying to me, why would I want to um, uh, read so many black writers and authors? Did I want to be black? And I said, well, w would that be wrong? And they said, oh, yes, you know, stay with your own. I found a quote for them from The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois, back in 1903, 105 years ago. Du Bois wrote... Herein lies the tragedy of the age. Not that men are poor, 
all men know something of poverty. Not that men are wicked. Who is good? Not that men are ignorant. What is truth? Nay, but that men know so little of men. And that's the end of the Du Bois quote. And I remember at the time writing on the board underneath that quote, and what about what they know of women? And then we got into a real dust-up. That was the, uh, I guess, the early 70s. And feminism had just uh, come back into uh, the consciousness of the young. And they had a, a royal time. With that, I was laughing out in the hallway with uh, Chris Martinez. He says that he was at the California State Court today. And they were having the, <laughs> the legal arguments, you know, over gay marriage and whether or not um, a lesbian and gay couples should uh, be legally married and adopt children and do all those wonderful family value things. And, of course, the argument for them was that uh, this was for the good of society, for the, uh, what is it, uh, the civilizing of our race, don't you know? So then <laughs> the other folks, the family values people, you know, <laughs> the right wing came forward and said... Well, you know, gay, gay persons, lesbian persons, um, uh, same sex, same sex persons, we should say, same sex persons, they would have to choose, they would have to be deliberate about having uh, offspring in one way or another. They would have to, uh, uh, be responsible, you know. And he said, uh, whereas most children, of course, just come into the world by accident. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I think that's the funniest story I've heard in a year. I was thinking after uh, Chris Martinez told me that story, can you imagine, try, try to imagine what our world would be if unwanted pregnancy were to cease right now, this minute at uh, seven minutes after three on March the 4th. And I'll tell you what, by International Women's Day on March the 8th, the whole world would have done a complete flip, a total U turn. The disabled among us, the females, you know, who did not choose to bear children, would be able to go to work and get things done. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, don't, Jennifer, don't start on Hillary. No, no, we're not going to talk about Hillary. Not today. We'll save Hillary and Barack Obama for another day. Uh, I find it all very heartbreaking. It's so encouraging on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's so business as usual. And uh, as always, they're going to get eaten alive. Never mind. Uh, I was thinking late, late last night, though, that if she should find herself back in the Senate, observing from a distance, that Hillary Clinton might... Uh, come closer to an Eleanor Roosevelt figure, uh, she wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't be in the catbird seat. She could become uh, a thoughtful uh, observer and give her her feedback that way. But I don't know. I, I grieve. I grieve over these things. This morning early I got up and I was trying to think of something that was not misanthropic, something that was not... Uh, Negative, you know how everybody is these days. They don't want us to be negative. 
And I thought, yes, I'll get out my favorite philosopher, Mark Twain. <laughs> who, who is, who is darker in his great age than old Mark Twain? Talk about a misanthrope. Uh, I want to read you a letter from Satan. I want you to read. Let's see. Mark Twain's book, Letters from the Earth. Uh, uncensored writings, uh, edited by Bernard Devoto. Eighteen weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> this is the stuff that he didn't make money on. Uh, I love these pieces. They're uh, the diaries of Adam and Eve. And, of course, they're Mark Twain in his um, in his late age when he had, uh, let's say, lost the faith entirely. <laughs> I don't think he ever lost his sense of humor. But uh, he, he likes to write about... Um, Satan. Satan is sent down to earth. Uh, he's uh, exiled. And sometimes he writes home, not not to God, but just privately to St. Michael and St. Gabriel. Uh, <laughs> and his opinion of us, of us human beings, is very telling. Here's uh, one of his letters. Letter two, he says, uh-huh. I have told you nothing about man that is not true. You will pardon me if I repeat that remark now and then in these letters, because I want you to take seriously the things I'm telling you. <sighs> there is nothing about man that is not strange to an immortal. He looks at nothing as we look at it. His sense of proportion is quite different from ours. His sense of values is so widely divergent from ours that with all our large intellectual powers, it is not likely that even the most gifted among us would ever be quite able to understand him. For instance, take this sample. He has imagined a heaven and has left entirely out of it the supremest of all his delights, the one ecstasy that stands first and foremost in the heart of every individual of his race and of ours. Sexual intercourse. It is as if a lost and perishing person in a roasting desert should be told by the rescuers he might choose and have all longed-for things but one, and he should elect to leave out the water. <laughs> Man's heaven is like himself. Strange, interesting, astonishing, grotesque. I give you my word, it has not a single feature in it that he actually values. It consists utterly and entirely of diversions which he cares next to nothing about. Here on the earth, yes, yet it is quite sure... Uh, <laughs> He is quite sure that he will like these things in heaven. Now, I know it is curious, uh, interesting, but you must not think I am exaggerating. I will give you a few details. <laughs> now, there's a couple of pages about the fact that men uh, can't sing, but that they do it anyway. <laughs> and a long treatise on the dreariness of the Sabbath day. I think I would like to skip over to... Letter number three, to give you um, a pinpoint um, 
you have noticed, writes Satan, that the human being is a curiosity. In times past he has had and worn out and flung away hundreds and hundreds of religions. Today he has hundreds and hundreds more. He launches not fewer than three new ones every year. One of his principal religions is called the Christian. <clears throat> A sketch of it will interest you. It is set forth in detail in a book containing two million words called the Old and New Testaments. Also, it has another name, the Word of God. The Christian thinks every word of it was dictated by God, that is, the Christians I have been speaking of. It is full of interest. It has noble poetry in it. It has some very clever fables and some blood-drenched history and some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. This Bible is built mainly out of the fragments and shreds of older Bibles that had their day and crumbled to ruin. So it noticeably lacks in originality, necessarily. Its three or four most imposing and impressive events all happened in earlier Bibles. All its best precepts and rules of conduct came from those Bibles. There are only two new things in it, hell for one, and that new and singular heaven I have told you all about. <laughs> I will break in with one footnote here. I only wish Mark Twain had lived long enough to see the return of the goddess, as they say. Makes everybody furious to talk about, um, you know, New Age, the notion that the feminine was divine and that there was a time when uh, we thought that uh, the sacred had uh, womanly qualities, yes. Anyway. Let's go on with Mark Twain. He says, what shall we do? What shall we do if we believe with these people that their God invented all those cruel things? Why, well, then we slander him. If we believe that these people invented these things themselves, we slander those people. It is an unpleasant dilemma in either case. For none of these parties, neither one has done us any harm. So, for the sake of tranquility, let us take a side. Let us join forces with uh, the people and put the whole ungenerous burden upon him. Heaven, hell, Bible, and all. It does not seem right. It does not seem fair. And yet when you consider that heaven and how crushingly charged it is with everything that is repulsive to a human being... Uh, how can we believe that a human being could have invented it? So when I come to tell you about hell, the strain will be greater still, and you will be likely to say, Oh, no, a man would not provide that place for either himself or anybody else. He simply could not. That innocent Bible tells about the creation. Of what? <laughs> the universe? Yes. The universe in six days. God did it. 
He did not call it the universe. That name is modern. His whole attention was upon this world. He constructed it in five days, and then it took him only one, one day to make twenty million suns and eighty million planets. What were they for, according to his idea? To furnish light, that's all, furnish light for our little toy world. That was God's whole purpose. He had no other. One of the twenty million suns, the smallest one, was to light it in the daytime. The rest were to help, yes, <laughs> help one of the universe's countless moons to modify the darkness of its nights. It is quite manifest that he believed his fresh-made skies were diamond-strewn with those myriads of twinkling stars the moment his first day's sun sank below the horizon. Whereas, in fact, not a single star winked in that black vault. Until three years and a half after that memorable week's formidable industries had been completed. <laughs> he has a, a, a whole package of footnotes here in which he tries to point out the scientific uh, absurdities of creationism. <laughs> anyway, he says, at the end of the first hundred years, there were not yet 25 stars twinkling in the wide wastes of those gloomy skies. At the end of a thousand years, not enough stars were yet visible to make a show. At the end of a million years, only half of the present array had sent their light over the telescopic frontiers, and it took another million for the rest to follow, as the vulgar phrase goes. And there being at that time no telescope, their advent was not observed. For three hundred years now, the Christian astronomer has known that his deity didn't make the stars in those... Uh, tremendous six days, but the Christian astronomer does not enlarge upon that detail, and neither does the priest. <laughs> in his book, God is eloquent in his praises of his mighty works. He calls them by the largest names he can find, thus indicating that he has a strong and just admiration of magnitudes, magnitudes, yet he made those millions of suns to light only our wee little orb. Uh, he mentions, let's see, he mentions Arc, Arcturus, yes, in the book. You remember Arcturus. <laughs> it is one of the Earth's night lamps. It's a giant globe which is 50,000 times as large as this earth's sun and compares with it as a melon compares with a cathedral. However, the Sunday school still teaches the child that Arcturus was created to help light our earth. The child grows up and continues to believe it long after he has found out that the probabilities are pretty much against its being so... According to this book and its servants, the universe is only 6,000 years old. It is only within the last hundred years that uh, studious inquiring minds have found out that it is nearer, oh, a hundred million. 
During the six days, God created man and the other animals. He made a man and a woman, placed them in a pleasant garden along with other creatures. They all lived together there in harmony and contentment and blooming youth for some time. Then trouble came. God had warned the man and the woman that they must not eat of the fruit of a certain tree. And he added a most strange remark. He said that if they ate of it, they would surely die. Strange. For the reason that inasmuch as they had never seen a sample of death, they could not possibly know what he meant. Neither would he nor any other god have been able to make those ignorant children understand what was meant without furnishing a sample. The mere word could have no meaning for them any more than it would have for an infant a few days old. Ah, presently, a serpent sought them out privately and came to them walking upright, which was the way of serpents in those days. The serpent said the forbidden fruit would store their vacant minds with knowledge. So they ate it, which was quite natural, for man is so made that he eagerly wants to know. Whereas the priest, like God, whose imitator and representative he is, has made it his business from the beginning to keep man from knowing any useful thing. So Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and at once a great light streamed into their dim, dim heads. They had acquired knowledge. What a fall was there! What knowledge! Useful knowledge? No, merely the knowledge that there was such a thing as good and such a thing as evil. And they gained the knowledge of how to do evil. They couldn't do it before. Therefore, all their acts up to this time had been without strain, without blame, without offense. But now they could do evil. They could suffer from evil. Now they had acquired what the church calls an invaluable possession, which is the moral sense, that sense which differentiates man from the beast and sets man above the beast instead of below the beast, where one would suppose his proper place would be, since he is always foul-minded and guilty, and the beast is always clean-minded and innocent. It is like watching, uh, yes, a watch go wrong, <laughs> yes. The church still prizes the moral sense the church sees the moral sense as man's noblest asset, although the church knows God has a distinctly poor opinion of it. 
and God did what he could in his clumsy way to keep his happy children of the garden from acquiring knowledge. So very well, Adam and Eve now knew what evil was and how to do it. They knew how to do various kinds of wrong things, and among them one principal one, the one God had his mind on principally. That one was the art and the mystery of sexual intercourse. To them, to Eve and to Adam, this was a magnificent discovery, and they stopped idling around and turned their entire attention to it, poor, exultant young things. And in the midst of one of these celebrations, they heard God walking among the bushes, which was an afternoon custom of his, and they were smitten with fright. Why? Because they were naked. They had not known it before, and they had not minded it before, and neither had God. In that memorable moment, immodesty was born. Some people have valued it ever since, <laughs> though it would certainly puzzle them to explain why. Adam and Eve entered the world naked and unashamed, naked and pure-minded, and no descent of theirs has ever entered it otherwise. All have entered the world naked, unashamed, and clean in mind. They have entered the world modest. They had to acquire immodesty and the soiled mind. There was no other way to get it. A Christian mother's first duty is to soil her child's mind, and she does not neglect her duty. Her lad grows up to be a missionary. He goes to the innocent savage and to the civilized Japanese, soils their minds, whereupon they adopt immodesty, conceal their bodies. They stop bathing naked altogether. Yes. <laughs> Fortunately, footnote here. Fortunately, the Japanese didn't buy that. They still bathe together. Mark Twain goes on to write, uh, This convention that is miscalled modesty has no standard. It cannot have a standard because it is opposed to nature and to reason. It is therefore an artificiality. It's subject to anybody's whim, anybody's diseased caprice. And so in India the refined lady covers her face, her breasts and leaves her legs naked from the hips down, while the refined European lady covers her legs and exposes her face and her breasts. In lands inhabited by the innocent savage, the refined European lady soon uh, gets used to full-grown uh, native stark nakedness and ceases to be offended by it. A highly cultivated French count and countess, unrelated to each other, who were marooned in their night clothes by shipwreck upon an uninhabited island in the 18th century, were very soon naked. They, too, were also ashamed for a week. After that, their nakedness did not trouble them, and they soon ceased to think about it. <sighs> 
You have never seen a person with clothes on. Well, you haven't lost anything. To proceed with the biblical curiosities, naturally, you will think that the threat to punish Adam and Eve for disobeying was not carried out since they did not create it themselves. I've come to the end of this letter. I wish I had time to read you uh, the most blasphemous last paragraph. I'll save it for next time. <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone reading to you from Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth, the letters that Satan wrote to his fellow angels in heaven after he had been exiled and come down to study us. Yes, like an anthropologist, he studies mankind. Till next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. What do American soldiers really do when they're sent to fight in Iraq? Find out March 14th to 16th when hundreds of Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans step forward to tell their stories at the Winter Soldier Gathering in Washington, D.C. For three days, KPFA will stop its regular programming to broadcast these true stories from the front lines. I'm Aaron Glantz. I spent parts of three years in Iraq and heard stories of torture, mass arrests, and massacres of innocent civilians as they cowered in their homes. The Pentagon always denies these claims or says they're the fault of a few bad apples. But American soldiers know these are not isolated incidents, but an integral part of the war plan. So please join me, along with KPFA morning show host Amy Allison, for this historic three-day special